Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We have uh, Colonel John Eidsmo here as your host from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you again. Well, it's great to be with you again, Brian. And you call me the host. I think you're really the host. And so maybe we just call ourselves co-hosts. And we're both lovers of liberty, and we're both lovers of the U.S. Constitution as a means of guaranteeing liberty. And so that's what we're going to be exploring today, as we do every week. So where would you like to begin today? I know um, we were talking interposition last week, but I understand there are some some moves afoot to pack the Supreme Court, and you have some thoughts on that. Yes, and we want to continue with our discussion of interposition and something closely related to it called nullification. But before we do, we do need to see constitutional issues as they are being worked out today. (coughs) Excuse me, I hope that doesn't happen often. But anyway, one is a proposal to pack the United States Supreme Court. Now, it's interesting that during the campaign, President-elect Biden, or he wasn't, I'm sorry, candidate Biden at that time, former vice president, had refused to answer in debates whether he would try to pack the court. In fact, in one of the debates, President Trump repeatedly asked him that question, Joe, are you going to pack the court? Joe, are you going to pack the court? Joe, are you going to pack the court? And he refused to answer. And will you please shut up at one point, he said. And then he decided he had to give an answer. So he gave the best kind of answer that is a complete non-answer and said that he was going to appoint a commission to look into it. Well, that's just a way of ducking the issue. And the reason he refused to say he was going to pack the court is polls had shown that that was a very unpopular move among the American people. And that would have lost him a lot of votes if he'd openly said that he was going to pack the court. But now that he is ensconced in office, now he says that's exactly what he is going to do. It's interesting right now that you look to the makeup of the court, and you've got three liberals on the court. You've got Sotomayor and Kagan and and Justice Breyer. And then you've got five that seem to be pretty reliable conservatives those being, of course, Justice Thomas and Alito and the three Trump appointees, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh and most recently Justice Barrett. And then you have (coughs) Chief Justice Roberts. And Roberts was appointed as a conservative and was expected to be a conservative and voted pretty consistently conservative in the first few years of office. Lately, he has had a few votes that have caused some people to question whether he's really a conservative and whether he may be moving to being a swing justice. But my own view is that I think we will generally see Chief Justice Roberts in the conservative camp, meaning that if that's the case, we have six conservatives and three liberals on the Supreme Court. Recognize not everyone is going to vote the way they're expected to vote every time. Well, in order to outvote those six conservatives, we would need to 
have four additional liberals. And so President Biden has issued a proposal now that he wants to expand the size of the Supreme Court from nine to 13. And if that is successful, then if he is able to appoint people that share his point of view and get them confirmed, that would mean that he would start winning cases seven to six instead of losing cases five to four or six to three. That's the goal here. And when we have the left firmly in control of the executive branch, the administration, and we have them narrowly in control of both houses of Congress, that leaves the Supreme Court as being the last protection that we have against blatantly unconstitutional power grabs and corrupt left-wing measures. Anyway, what's going to happen with this proposal? Well, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. For one thing, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, has surprised some people by saying that even though she's open to expanding the court, she is not for this bill and has no plans to bring this bill to the floor. And so it probably won't get through the House. If it got through the House and then went to the Senate, well, in the Senate, of course, the vote is 50-50, 50 Republican, 50 Democrats. On this issue, I think you could count on all 50 Republicans to vote no, and possibly Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema and a couple of others as well. But also, we still have the filibuster in the Senate and the rule that that can't be overcome without 60 votes for cloture to overcome it. And so long as that remains in effect, doesn't look like much chance of passage in the Senate. But just a couple things I would notice about this. First thing is that it might surprise a few people, but this is constitutional. A lot of people think that the Constitution says there will be nine Supreme Court justices. No, it doesn't give a number. Congress sets the number of justices, and then the president nominates justices to fill those positions. And then the Senate, of course, revises and consents by majority vote to the persons that the president has nominated. Now, one thing the president could do is, let's say they did expand the size of the court, and the president, if the reverse situation were to it, the president didn't think it should be that large, he could simply refuse to make an appointment. And there's no way you could force the president to make a nomination to the court. And unless he did, then there's nobody for the Senate to confirm. To confirm. However, there's nothing in the Constitution that says there has to be 13 justices. Now, President Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt, tried this in the 1930s when we had a conservative Supreme Court that by a usually a 5-4 margin was striking down Roosevelt's New Deal legislation, and so he proposed to put three additional justices on the court, one additional justice for each currently sitting justice who was over 70 years old and therefore needed a little help, and had he succeeded, then he could have been winning cases six to five instead of losing five to four, but at any rate, there was such a reaction against that by the American people at that time 
including by many within his own party, that he dropped the idea. Well, I think there is a widespread feeling that tampering with the court just for the purposes of altering the way the court would vote and giving another party the voting advantage of the court, that this interferes with the independence of the court. And even though it is not blatantly unconstitutional, it's contrary to our constitutional tradition and just isn't a good idea. But be aware of this. I suggest that our viewers urge their Congress people to vote against this measure. I don't think it's going to go anywhere, but it could. Now, there was another measure that was talked about during the election, and this is right at the time when the president nominated Amy Barrett to the court, and when she was confirmed by a narrow vote in the Senate. But anyway, at that time, there was a proposal that would limit the justices in the court to 19-year terms. And didn't say that they'd be off the court then, but that they'd be rotated to other positions like maybe the district court or the court of appeals. I would say that measure would be blatantly unconstitutional. Article 3, Section 1 says, the judges, both of supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior. In other words, no set terms during good behavior, but not just be on the bench, but hold their offices. That is the particular position that they were nominated and confirmed to. So I would say that measure would be blatantly unconstitutional. And I haven't heard that talked about recently, but that is one thing else that has been proposed. The idea of limiting terms for Supreme Court justices may have some merit, but that would have to be done by a constitutional amendment, not by a statute. And the route they're talking about here is a subterfuge to try to get around the Constitution and I don't think that's going to happen either, but we need to be aware of these dangers because they really are dangerous. All right. Well, that's that's a good start to the program today. We will, uh, I assume we're going to be moving on to talk about uh, interposition and nullification. Okay. Stay with us. This is Constitution Classroom. We'll be back right after these messages. attack he was 47 what about janice and the kids do they have life insurance no call select quote now and get the insurance your family needs at a price you can afford in minutes select quote found john 45 in excellent health a $500,000 policy for only $29 a month and his wife ann 43 in excellent health a $500,000 policy for only $21 a month at select quote we comparison shop some of the most trusted insurance companies in America to find you the best rate in minutes. And it's free. For your free quote, call 1-800-644-1331. That's 1-800-644-1331. Or go to selectquote.com. That's 1-800-644-1331. Select quote. We shop. You save. Get full details on the example policies at selectquote.com slash commercials. Your premium could vary depending on your health, issuing company, and other factors. Not available in all states. 
Hi, this is Brian Hyde. Several months ago, I was introduced to a small Idaho technology company called PureLight that's invented a new type of light bulb that's simply amazing. Their LED light bulbs make all other light bulbs obsolete. And I've actually had a chance to put them to work in my own home. Now, these are bulbs that eliminate odors, including pet odors and chemical smells. They eliminate mold. They eliminate deadly germs, even the tough-to-kill ones like MRSA or E. coli or salmonella. They eliminate smells. They eliminate deadly chemicals from the air, just like a $1,000-plus air purification machine would do, only for a whole lot less with these Pure Light LED bulbs. And you know what? They work as advertised, and they're already being used in thousands of homes, businesses, schools, assisted living facilities, medical facilities, government buildings, and more. Find out for yourself. Go to pure-light.com. That's pure-light.com, the next generation of light bulb. The following are real-life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. I initially was scared to call, and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors, and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, appreciate your thoughts about uh, court packing. I was going to say court packing schemes, but that might sound like I disagreed with it, which, oh, I guess I do. Anyway, <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about interposition and, and nullification, a couple of remedies that uh, I don't think a lot of people hear about often. No, but we're talking about interposition and nullification a lot more just recently, since right now with some of the Biden administration's proposals, there are quite a few things that we may need to interpose against. Now, we began talking about interposition last week, and we saw that interposition basically means the lesser magistrates, that is, lower officials in government like in the United States, state and local officials, interposing or standing between the federal government, the higher magistrate, and the people these local officials represent, standing against those higher magistrates when, like let's say, the federal officials start doing things that are unconstitutional or are usurpations of power or are tyrannical, and all three of those terms would be very closely related together. Last week, just to give a quick summary again, last week we saw that interposition is a concept that has roots in the scriptures, particularly in the instance where we see when King Rehoboam succeeds to the throne from King Solomon, that those of the northern kingdom approach him and say to him that we will follow you if you give us some tax relief and some relief from your high and oppressive regulations and so on. And 
Rehoboam tells them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins, where he has chastised you with whips. I will chastise you with scorpions. 300% tax increase, effective, no, effective retroactively. And the ten northern tribes simply say, What have we to do with the house of David, that is Judah, to your tents, O Israel? And the ten northern tribes essentially break away from Israel. And from that point on, they are known as the Northern Confederacy, or sometimes simply called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim after the leading of those ten northern tribes. And the southern tribes, consisting of Judah and Simeon, which had been absorbed within the tribe of Judah, and Benjamin, that the southern tribes from that point on are called Judea. But as to whether that was a justifiable thing to do or not, well, we see that shortly thereafter, King Rehoboam got his army together. After all, Solomon had had quite a large standing army, and they'd be loyal to the monarchy. And anyway, so he gets his army together to go up and subjugate the northern tribes. And a prophet of God, Shemiah, meets Rehoboam on the way and says, Go not up against the tribes of the north. Because God says what they have done is of me, that is, is of God. And so Rehoboam follows the prophet, goes back home, and from that point on, the kingdoms are separate. And that would appear to be an act of interposition, and I would say a justifiable act of interposition. We see another during the Reformation. And you recall that in fact, this is a significant time that last Sunday, the 18th of April, is a day that celebrates an important event in the Reformation. It was the 500th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther stood before the Diet of Worms, conducted by the Holy Roman Emperor and at the instigation of the Pope. And when he was commanded there to recant his writings, he said that he would not recant them unless he could be shown from the scriptures where they were wrong. And he said, my conscience is bound to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant. And as a result of this, the Holy Roman Emperor issued a decree that branded Luther an outlaw and commanded anyone who found Luther to either capture or slay him, wanted dead or alive, you might say. And Anyway, at that point, the Prince of Saxony, that was the northern kingdom of Germany of which Luther was a part, but Frederick, the Prince of Saxony, exercised interposition on behalf of Luther. He staged a mock kidnapping of Luther, took Luther to a castle called Wartburg Castle, where Luther spent a year there translating the Bible into German, but it was this act of interposition by Prince Frederick against the Holy Roman Emperor that enabled Luther's Reformation to go forward. We see another example when the Parliament of England in the 1600s interposes against the Stuart Kings. And Stuart Kings meaning James I and Charles I and then Charles II and James II. But they had a major dispute and Underlying that dispute was lines of authority. The Stuart kings said that all 
power, political power, is of God, and the Puritans in Parliament would agree with that, but they said God gives power directly to the king, divine right of kings. The king then delegates power to some of the lesser rulers, like the local gentry or the members of Parliament, and they, in turn, rule over the people in the name of the king, and ultimately in the name of God. But the Puritans and the Parliament insisted, no, God gives government and power to the people. And then the people delegate that power to their lower rulers, the state and local, and they, in turn, delegate power to the United States, the federal government, or in England, to the king. So what we call the federal government, the higher magistrate, it is responsible to the lesser magistrates who are responsible to the people, who are responsible to God. And understanding that all power to the people, while it was a slogan of the French Revolution, that it's not really contrary to proper understanding. In South Dakota, the state motto of my native South Dakota, a motto that was drafted by a pastor, simply says, under God, the people rule. And that puts the two principles together very well. Well, we see a classic example of interposition here in America with the Declaration of Independence and the American War for Independence. And in that declaration, we see that we are entitled to our independence by the laws of nature and of nature's God. And further, that there are certain self-evident truths, and those are that all men are created, not evolved equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, not by their government with certain negotiable privileges, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The purpose of the government is not to grant rights, it is to secure rights. And that when government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles, and so on. In other words, when government becomes destructive of these ends of human equality and preservation of our God-given rights, the people have a right to overthrow that government and establish a new government in its place. Jefferson goes on to say in the Declaration that when there are only some minor abuses, recognizing no government is perfect, and there are only some minor abuses, then maybe it's better just to endure those. But when evils are insufferable, and when there has been a long line of abuses, a long train of abuses and usurpations, then it is their right, it is their duty to overthrow such government and provide new guards for their security. And so Jefferson asks, do we have evidence that the English government is pursuing a long train of abuses and usurpations? To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And we'll see those facts after the break.
Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, you were uh, you were giving us a nice uh, quote here from Thomas Jefferson, and I'm I'm eager to hear the rest of this. It's, it's it has a familiar ring to it. Well, we all should be familiar with the Declaration of Independence. Let me pause just a moment while that cuckoo clock is going cuckoo. And It rings at 25 after the hour. Jefferson goes on in the declaration then to give a list of grievances, evidences that England is engaged in a long train of abuses and usurpations that show a design to reduce the colonies to utter absolute despotism. First of all, the king has refused to assent the laws that the colonial legislatures have passed and that are necessary to the public good. He has forbidden the governors to adopt measures for the public good. He has called together legislative bodies at places that are unusual and distant from home. He's dissolved the colonial legislatures sometimes. He has tried to prevent the population of the states to pass other laws that would encourage migration back and forth among the colonies. He's obstructed the administration of justice. He's made judges dependent on his will. That is, he would fire any judges that didn't do what he wanted to do. He has kept standing armies in the colonies against their will. He has combined with others to subject us to jurisdiction foreign to our constitution, quartered troops in private homes, cut off trade with other parts of the world, impose taxes without our consent, that is, out without the consent of the colonial legislatures, depriving people of the benefits of trial by jury, transporting people overseas to be tried in England for offenses allegedly committed in the United States, for abolishing some of the colonial charters, other things that he lists here. And after listing all of these things, he says, we have tried to bring these oppressions to the attention of England. England refuses to listen. And therefore, a prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. That being the case, we are simply declaring the fact that these colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states. That's an act of interposition. And then, when England goes to war to prevent the colonies from interposing, the colonies defend themselves. And I think you can probably better call the American War at that time not the Revolution, but the War for Independence and a war that really continued until about 1781, but wasn't formally ended until the Treaty of Paris in 1783. It's interesting you look at the Treaty of Paris and see the language that it begins with those words in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity, clearly a recognition of the Christian God. Anyway, so putting all of that together, we see that not only did the Reformation begin with an act of interposition, not only did the English practice interposition, but America as a nation began with an act of interposition. 
the lesser magistrates, that is, the members of the Continental Congress and the leaders of the various colonies were interposing against the King of England. Alexander Hamilton said shortly after the War for Independence that nothing has really changed here. Property is in the same hands. The laws are the same. All that has changed is the seat of government. And this was described by Samuel Eliot Morrison of Harvard as, a, as the conservative American Revolution. But this principle of nullification, we see this, many associated with a congressman, a senator, and for a, a time, vice president of the United States from South Carolina, John C. Calhoun. Calhoun served as vice president under Andrew Jackson, but had some disagreements with Andrew Jackson that led him to resign the vice presidency and go back to serving in the Senate, where he thought he could do the most good for Carolina and for the South. But the doctrine of nullification was the idea that states could refuse to allow the enforcement of certain acts of the federal government, particularly acts of Congress or actions of the president, within their respective states. And we see this being a principle that many believed in at the time of the founding. By the way, if some of our listeners are interested in this doctrine of nullification more, I'd like to suggest a book by Regnery Press, a book written by a friend of mine, Thomas Woods, and it is titled simply Nullification, How to Resist Federal Tyranny in the 21st Century. Frankly, I saw Tom Woods at an airport. He yelled out my name and insisted he had to give me a copy of his book. And I said, well, shouldn't they all read that? I'd be interested in it. I figured I knew quite a bit about nullification, but I was surprised to find that I learned something new on every page of this book. Nullification, Thomas Woods. But one thing that I might mention from Woods in particular, and that's a quotation that he gives us from Spencer Roan. Now, Spencer Roan, in the early 1800s was a Virginia judge, and he probably would have been appointed Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court if Thomas Jefferson had been able to make that appointment instead of John Adams appointing a Federalist to John Marshall. But here is what Spencer Roan says concerning this doctrine of interposition or nullification. He says, it has, however, been supposed by some that the right of state governments to protest against or to resist encroachments on their authority is taken away and transferred to the federal judiciary, whose power extends to all cases arising under the Constitution, that the Supreme Court is the umpire to decide between the states on the one side and the United States on the other in all questions touching the constitutionality of laws or acts of the executive. There are many cases which can never be brought before that tribunal, and I do humbly conceive that the states could never have committed an act of such egregious folly as to agree that their umpire should be altogether appointed and paid by the other party. What he is saying here, in other words, is that when the states at the Constitutional Convention put together the Constitution, could they possibly have intended to agree in that Constitution 
that with this new federal government that is being established, that any dispute between the states or a state and the federal government would be resolved by an agency of the federal government. The states would never have drafted a constitution with that purpose, and they would never have ratified a constitution had they had any idea that was going to be its effect, Judge Rowan says. And I think what he says makes a great deal of good common sense. We see many times throughout history that interposition or nullification was practiced by the states before the war between the states, and it is practiced primarily by states in the north. For example, when there is a proposal to go to war, the War of 1812, and many in New England, Daniel Webster, for example, were opposed to this. Daniel Webster, others of the northern governors like Trumbull and others simply said, this will not apply, that is absolutely of no effect whatsoever in our state. This is mostly the New England states at this time. Also, we see as we move into a little further into the 1800s that there are issues sometimes involving tariffs and other matters that the southern states thought unfairly taxed them and that the revenue from the taxation was going to be spent at the north. And several times they threatened to secede. And we find repeatedly officials from the north coming down to particularly South Carolina please don't CC. We don't want you to do that. Let's try to work this out. And eventually it'll get worked out. But notice, never were they saying, you don't have a right to secede or you don't have a right to nullify. They're just begging them not to exercise the right, which seems to concede they have that right. Well, now let's look at a man by the name of John C. Calhoun. And Calhoun advances this doctrine of nullification. Let's see how that doctrine applies right after the break. You are listening to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, and we invite you, if you haven't checked out the archives, you can do so at lovingliberty.net. Very simple matter of uh, simply logging on there and go to Constitution Classroom. We'll be back after this. stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. I initially was scared to call and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. 
This is good news, maybe exactly when you need it to. Right now, MetaShare is waiving their new member fees. This could save you money on top of all that you'll save each month by becoming a member of MetaShare. So many people are looking for a healthcare solution right now, seeing the cost of COBRA plans, for instance, and MetaShare is the affordable alternative to health insurance. The typical family saves $500 a month. You might save even more. MetaShare is a Christian community that shares each other's healthcare costs, and because of the current economic situation, they're making it easier than ever. Apply by March 31st. You can save an additional $170 on your first month. I'll give you the number here in a second. And if you call, you can get a price within two minutes. Just tell them the promo code SHARE to receive your additional savings. Maybe now is the time to make the switch like more than 400,000 people already have and start saving. Here it is. Call 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. Tell me why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only $19.95 to see if it will work for you too. Call 800-500-8384. ReliefFactor.com. What can help you take advantage of today's low mortgage rates and save money? Rocket can. You could save hundreds of dollars every month by refinancing with Rocket Mortgage at today's near historic low rates. If your current rate is over 4%, you could lower your payment by over $150 a month, saving thousands in interest every year. Call us today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com. Savings are based on quick and loans, internal data, points and fees may apply. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing letter. License in all 50 states. And consumer access. Number 3030. And we welcome you to our final segment of today's Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Getting some good insights here on John C. Calhoun. That's a name that I've heard, but I'm, I'm loving that you're filling in some of the gaps in my understanding of uh, him as well as his standing on nullification. You know, it's interesting that issues themselves don't die. They may go dormant, go into hibernation for a while, but they reassert themselves at a later time. Ideas don't die. And sometimes, even though an idea is not currently fashionable, it's important to keep those ideas alive, even in a somnolent state, because the time will come when people are looking for answers and those ideas may reassert themselves. There was a group of Japanese students of government that came to the United States to study American government. And one of the things that they wanted to do when they came to the United States was study and interact with some scholars who were familiar with John C. Calhoun. And at that time, Obama was president. And you can kind of imagine that his officials there in the State Department said, oh, I I don't think you really want to listen to John C. Calhoun. I don't think that would be of any interest. You've got so many others that are so much more interesting and relevant than he was. But no, they wanted to learn the philosophy of John C. Calhoun. And he is one of the most brilliant constitutional scholars in the history of the United States. Senator from South Carolina, a spokesman for the South in those days, not associated with the war between the states. He died about 10 years before that war began, but his ideas of nullification certainly had some effect. 
Now, John C. Calhoun was especially concerned with the question about what do you do when a majority of the people in the United States, maybe the states in the United States, favor a measure, a measure that is popular nationally, but is unpopular in a certain state or a certain region of the country. How do you handle that kind of conflicting situation? And his theory was what he called concurrent majorities. Derived some of this from Jefferson, some of it from Madison, but concurrent majorities. What we would do in a situation like that, he said, is allow that state to practice nullification. If Congress passes a law that South Carolina absolutely does not want, rather than trying to overthrow the government or trying to break away from the government, South Carolina, he says, can simply, through an act of its legislature, say that this law is of no force and effect in South Carolina. If you want to apply it in the rest of the states, that's fine, but here in South Carolina, that will not apply. In this way, the majority gets its way nationally, but the South Carolina gets its way within South Carolina. Now, in arguing for nullification, Calhoun makes some very systematic arguments, and I would suggest if you want to study Calhoun more, read particularly his Disquisition on Government and his Disquisition on the Constitution. I learned a great deal from reading them. One of the things I learned was the word disquisition, which means a systematic and organized discourse, usually a rather lengthy one. But his disquisition on government in particular addresses this and addresses it very well. First of all, he says that the man who we call the father of the Constitution, James Madison, was in favor of nullification and cites some things that Madison says in his Virginia resolutions. Madison was alive at the time Calhoun said this, and Madison said he had been misinterpreted, but anyway, some things in what Madison wrote at that time would certainly sound like it. Likewise, the man who we would call the father of American independence, maybe Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration, in his Kentucky Resolves, makes some very clear statements that he supports the idea of nullification. He notes further that time and again, the northern states have practiced interposition and nullification when there have been measures passed by Congress that they haven't liked. And I'm reading all this, and I'm thinking, yes, Senator Calhoun, but there's a point that you haven't addressed and is really the trump card of those who are in opposition to you on this, and that is the supremacy clause of Article 6, Section 2 of the Constitution, which says the Constitution shall be the supreme law of the land, and all state judges and justices shall be bound thereby anything in state laws or state constitutions notwithstanding. So the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. South Carolina recognized this when they ratified the Constitution. And so you're pretty much stuck with that, Senator Calhoun. And then on the next page, 
Calhoun addresses the supremacy clause and makes it into his strongest argument in favor of nullification. He says, yes, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, but what part of the Constitution is the supreme law of the land? The obvious answer to that is all of it. If all of it is the supreme law of the land, then that includes the amendments, because the amendments, as we're told in Article 5, when they are adopted, they are for all intents and purposes part of the Constitution, so they're as much part of the Constitution as any other part. And so that then has to include the Tenth Amendment, which says that all power is not delegated to the federal government by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. And so Calhoun asks, if we're talking about a power over nullification, does anything in the Constitution delegate to the federal government the power to forbid nullification? And his answer to that question is no. And if you search through the Constitution, I think you'll have to conclude he is right. Is there anything in that federal Constitution that prohibits the states from exercising nullification? And again, if you search through the Constitution, you would have to conclude that Calhoun is right. There is nothing. Since then, this power has not been delegated to the federal government or prohibited to the states by the Constitution. Then, according to the Constitution's Tenth Amendment, that power over nullification is reserved to the states. And that, my friend, Calhoun says, is the supreme law of the land. Now, I have made that argument dozens of times. I have never had anyone even attempt a refutation of it. And I think the reason is, it's a sound point. Now, one of the examples of nullification takes place shortly before the war between the states. And you recall, we had an issue of slavery in the South, and what happens to slaves in the South if they are, are, if they are freed, if they escape, let's say, and they find themselves then in a state that does not have slavery, well, what happens then? Are they then free? Well, Congress, in an attempt to placate the South in the 1850s, passed the Fugitive Slave Law. And the Fugitive Slave Law simply said that if a fugitive slave is found in a free state, that state, like Illinois, has a duty under federal law to take that slave into custody and return that slave to his owner. There was outrage about that law in the North. And there was a court case, the Dred Scott case, that held that the law was constitutional and that Dred Scott therefore had to be returned to his southern master. But states in the North strongly criticized that decision. The Wisconsin state legislature at that time passed a resolution saying that the Dred Scott decision is of no force and effect whatsoever in Wisconsin. Anyway, so we see a strong tradition, north and south alike, 
for this doctrine of nullification. And now that we are facing an administration that we believe in many ways is seeking to infringe our Second Amendment gun rights, our religious freedom rights, and our rights in other areas, can we exercise nullification? Well, a number of states and counties and local governments are doing exactly that, and we'll see that next week. <laughs>